So we're studying Acts chapter 18 and we're moving into chapter 19 today. So if you can find that in your Bible. By the way, if you need a Bible, somebody can fetch you one. Just raise your hand or go bug one of these deacon guys. So today's text is one of those texts that um, kind of baffles serious students of scriptures, I mean skilled Bible scholars, I mean they have differences of opinions about it, so it's one of those things. One thing about if teaching the Bible through like verse by verse is you have to deal with everything that's in there, right? You can't just skip, you can't skip the more complicated stuff. So this isn't like a gnarly, super gnarly thing, but there's a lot of differences of opinion about um, what's going on here, so I'm going to give you my take on it. Um, it raises a lot of questions that aren't really that easy to answer, but um, you know, if you're really going to do it seriously, um, you want the text to speak for itself in context. I mean, that's your goal as a teacher or a Bible reader. But sometimes passages are just so difficult, it's, it's kind of easy to fall back on your theological system to help you interpret the text. In other words, my theology will influence um, my understanding. And um, that's not always a wrong thing if your theology is really sound and it's textually based, but there's, in fact, there's one solid biblical rule of interpretation is that it, difficult passages or what you might call unclear or obscure passages, they have to give way to what's clear. And so much in the Bible is clear, so something's not going to ever contradict what's clear. So that's kind of one of the rules of interpretation. But it's right uh, to use clear teaching text. There's nothing wrong with that to help you understand other texts. But you should always aim at not relying on a theological system just to get you out of a jam. You know what I mean? So uh, you want the text to speak for itself. You want to do your best drawing out what it is. So today, um, it's one of those sort of situations. We're going to look at two stories that are linked and they're a little bit challenging. There's a common thread that ties them together in that both stories involve people found on the mission field who are on the kind of the right side of things, I guess you could say it that way, but they're ill-informed. And so many interpreters would say they're not Christians at all. And so we kind of want to look at these people and kind of figure out what Luke is trying to tell us by telling these stories. So what do you do with people like that? That you meet somebody who kind of says, I'm a Christian or I know Christ and they don't know some really major things or some things that you think would are just be would obvious that every Christian would know. So they profess Christ, but they know little. What do you do with those people? It's not an uncommon thing, especially in a culture like ours. You meet somebody that believes in some aspects of Christianity in kind of a general way, but there's big gaps in their knowledge or understanding. They're not too much in the Bible. And they, they've been... Um, other kinds of people have been under really strange teaching and so they've picked up some really kind of loony ideas. That's a gentle theological word, loony ideas. But um, ideas that just really have no grounding at all in the Bible but somebody taught them that and so they believe that. They've kind of added that into the mix of what they believe. So these stories today, um, actually they perfectly fit what you would expect to find on the ground in the middle of the first century whereas Christianity is just starting to go out especially within the Jewish community and that's really what we're looking at today uh, because they've got an Old Testament base and then word about Jesus is kind of in the air. If nobody's ever sat down with them and really explained the whole thing, they would have heard about him but they don't maybe know a lot or maybe they know enough to accept him but haven't grown in certain ways or haven't done all, everything that's expected of them as, as Christian people. So it really does sort of fit. Um, some Jews 
most Jews in the first century lived away from the Holy Land. And many of them knew more about John the Baptist than they did about Jesus. John the Baptist was incredibly famous. And Jesus was incredibly famous too. But he was sort of the, he was the new thing that hadn't happened in 400 years. Pretty, the average Jew pretty much believed he was a prophet. And there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. So he was famous. Even outside of the Bible, there are people writing about him, you know, that we have records of. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes about John the Baptist. So um, he was really significant. He was in the public eye longer than Jesus, and he was first before Jesus. So it kind of, he was to introduce Jesus, right? So he was very important. So how much do you have to know about Jesus to be considered a Christian? And what should we do with people that only know a little bit but not very much? What, how should we deal with them? How should we interact with them? Those are the kind of questions we want to deal with. So that's coming, but first we're just going to have to pick up the geography here in Acts chapter 18, verse 18. Um, Paul is traveling, and uh, we've got to talk about this first part here. So uh, if you want to throw a map up, Danny, if, if that's not up yet. Um, these verses are going to kind of close out Paul's second missionary journey. So Paul has three significant journeys that he went on. We've been studying the second missionary journey and that's starting to come to an end. He's going to his home church. He's going to be going to Antioch. So in, in modern missions talk, he's going on furlough, okay? And, uh, but on the way home, he wants to get this work started as his next main target city. Then he wants to go home and then he wants to come back to that target city and that city is Ephesus, the most significant city by far in the western part of Asia Minor, which today would be Turkey. So if you look at verse 18, it says, Paul having remained many days longer, where's he been? In Corinth. Good. Somebody was here last week. <laughs> he took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him where were Priscilla and Aquila. In Syncrea, that's how you say it in English, but Kingcrea is actually the way they would say it in, in those days. He had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus and he left them there. So if you look at your map and you look on the left-hand portion there where Greece is and you can see Achaia and they see Athens and Corinth and then Syncrea is right below Corinth there. It's that little spot there. They have a great barber in Syncrea. <laughs> I don't know why he went there except to get his hair cut. So... Um, probably had other reasons, but uh, that's what it mentions here. So he takes this vow, and I'm kind of curious about the vow, and we're not told why he took it. it it's quite personal, apparently, but um, first century Jews could take a, a short-term Nazarite vow, and the Nazarites was something that's in the law of Moses that certain people did. They abstained from alcohol. They didn't cut their hair, and uh, so you could let your hair grow out for a while and then you would cut it and then you had 30 days to get to the temple in Jerusalem and present an offering with your hair and it was just some special thing that Jews would do in the first century um, in, in their relationship with God. Maybe a Thanksgiving or something like that. So some scholars speculate that Paul was so grateful for 18 months of peace and very successful ministry in Corinth that he, he went through this process but we don't know why. We don't know why he did it. But maybe it was a thank you for blessing that. And some people wonder, well, how could Paul, the man of grace and the man who uh, set us free from the law and all of those things with, with the gospel of grace, how could he do something so Jewish? I mean, it's a very Jewish thing to do, right? Isn't he free in Christ? 
Yes, he is free in Christ. He's free to do something like this. Now, he's not imposing it on anybody else. He's not telling other people they should do that. It's a personal thing. It's a way that he wants to honor God in his own life. There's nothing sinful about it. So he's free to do that as a Christian. He doesn't teach it. He doesn't mandate it. And you know the principle there, Paul talked about himself in Romans chapter 14. Uh, Romans 14, 5, in fact, it says, he says, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. You can keep the Sabbath or you can not keep the Sabbath. That, that's not, uh, we're not under that law anymore. But if you want to do it, that's fine. If you're Jewish and you've done that your whole life, keep the Sabbath. That's perfectly fine. If you're a Gentile and you've never done it, you don't have to keep the Sabbath. It, it's not binding on you. Um, he goes on, he says, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord, or he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who does not eat for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. You don't have to keep kosher, but you can if you want to, so there's nothing wrong with that. So that shows us that there's room for different practices amongst believers to um, have their relationship with God in their own way, as long as they're not imposing things on other people that is not required in scripture for, for a Christian. And as long as it doesn't contradict uh, the, the teaching of Christ or something in the New Testament. So a Jew who is a Christian is free to honor Jewish festivals and customs. He just can't impose that on other people. So in this verse we just read back here in verse 18 and verse 19, Paul has two things on his mind. I'm gonna fulfill my vow to the Lord and I'm going to visit my home church, and I'm going to build a really solid church in the strategic city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, one of the most important cities in the ancient world. A city that he missed last time when he was um, in Roman Asia. So if you look over there in Asia, on that side of things, you see where Ephesus is. Follow the little arrow from Synchria, and it goes right over to Ephesus. He did a lot of church planting in Asia a city, uh, but Ephesus, he missed. Why did he miss it? Because he got a call. He got a call to cross over, right? The Macedonian call. He got the call. God arranged for him to literally called him over to Macedonia to start evangelizing the Greeks. So he never did hit Ephesus, but now he wants to. He wants to, and he's going to make a, a short visit before he goes and offers up his hair so Priscilla and Aquila sail with him. Those are the, that's the wonderful couple he met in Corinth. And he's going to leave them there to get things started and lay some foundation. Then he's going to go visit his church, go to Jerusalem, and then come back. So the next part I find really interesting. The middle of verse 19, it says, so they go to Ephesus. It says, he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay, hey, that's not usually how it works. What, are they, what usually happens with him? Usually a riot starts pretty soon within a couple of weeks, right? They wanted him to stay. He did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. He set sail from Ephesus. So they wanted him to stay. They were eager to hear more. Oh, how an evangelist's heart would just go, yes, I'll stay. But he made a vow, right? And he's got a plan. So he's going to stick with that vow he made. You don't break your vows to the Lord. That's always a bad thing to do. So no matter what's going on, he could trust that God's going to bless him by keeping his vow and coming back later. And he's left Priscilla and Aquila there, two very wonderful people. So the work can already get started with them. So they don't, you don't have to have an apostle to get the thing going. They, they just, you, all you need is, are some informed and faithful teachers 
a, a couple like Taylor and Abigail. <laughs> you know, it's all you really need to get something going. So he's planning to come back. So Ephesus is incredibly important, but so is his vow. And he wants to report to the church in Antioch where he was sent from, uh, what's been going on in the mission field. So all of that's, all of that's there. So uh, verse 22, he, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. If you go up, you're going to Jerusalem. That's just Jewish language because that's the highest place to be on the earth. Not physically, but spiritually the highest place to be on the earth. So he goes to Jerusalem greets the church and then he went down even though it's north he, we, we think of up and down that way but they don't think of it that way then so he went down to Antioch so he greeted the church in Jerusalem made, fulfilled his vow went north to Antioch so Antioch is home and that's the conclusion when he reaches Antioch that's the conclusion of his second missionary journey and right away Luke tells us that Paul set out again and verse 23 begins what we call Paul's third missionary journey. That's exactly right. So verse 23, and having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he's heading west again, but it's a long route. He's, he's taking the long way by land to visit the churches that he had planted on his first missionary journey. So he's going back through there. And as far as we can tell, scholarship, the book of Galatians was written from Corinth and the book of Galatians is a little harsh. It's pretty firm with the Galatians, right? If you've ever read that book, he's, he's kind of getting on their case about welcoming false teachers into their midst. And he's not been there since. So one of the reasons he's going back this way is to personally go to Galatians. Because if you write somebody a harsh letter, you can write them a letter later and saying, you know, I love you guys and everything's, you know, as long as you're doing the right thing, it's all good. But to personally visit is really important. So he's going to make that personal visit to the churches in Galatia and take some time there with them personally. He's the spiritual dad and he's going to check on the kids. That's really what he's doing there. So in-person meeting is best. Then he goes on to Ephesus by land through that Galatian region. That's going to take some time. So verse 24, verse 24 really should start with meanwhile back in Ephesus. Something springs in my mind from my childhood. Meanwhile back in the bat cave, but um, that kind of a thing. But meanwhile, in Ephesus, we start meeting some individuals who know about Jesus but have gaps in their understanding. So the first gentleman we meet is this very impressive man. And you're supposed to notice how impressive he is. His name is Apollos, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. And he was mighty in the scriptures. So Apollos, wow, he's an interesting guy. He's from Alexandria. So if the heart of first century Judaism was Jerusalem, the head of first century Judaism was Alexandria. That's just the way it was. It was th that's that great port city in Egypt, the source of um, gr the, the great harbor there sent a lot of grain to Rome. It was the second most important city in the Roman Empire um, after Rome itself. The tallest building in the world was there on a, a little island on the harbor called the Pharos Lighthouse. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the intellectual center of the empire. What Athens was in classical Greece but had declined in terms of its intellectual sharpness, Alexandria took over that role and that was the, the place to go if you wanted to study. Anything like a university that, that was in the ancient world was in Alexandria. And you could study a lot of fields there, a lot of fields of study. And it had a world-renowned library of at least a half a million books, which that's a lot of books. And they didn't have it all digital, you know. 
and um, people would go there to study. The Jewish population in Alexandria was at least 25 or 30 percent of the city was Jewish. So that tells you a lot right there. It was divided into five sections and two of those quarters, they wouldn't, can't be called quarters, but um, those two of those five sections were all Jewish. And so it had a very strong Jewish community there. The synagogue there has been described in ancient texts and it's huge. It's almost incomprehensibly huge. So um, Alex Alexandria is where Judaism and Greek philosophy met. And the Old Testament was translated to Greek before the time of Christ in Alexandria. That's where that actually happened. So the Jews were trying to bring together Judaism and Greek thought or, or evangelize the Greeks with, with, um, by kind of bringing them together. And there was a very great philosopher in Alexandria at this time, a contemporary of Paul named Philo. And he's the guy that invented an allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament. And why would he do that? Because the Greeks thought the Old Testament was kind of weird. So by allegorizing everything, he could kind of combine it with Platonic thinking and make it appeal to the Greeks. That's what he tried to do. So um, that's not a good thing to do, but that's what he did. And he was very famous. And Apollos is from the city where Philo was the resident genius. So um, it's interesting how P Apollos is described because it seems like he didn't bite in, in what Philo was doing. So Apollos probably knew him, may have known him personally, and uh, this is the world Apollos grew up in. Super academic, highly intelligent, very Jewish, but also very Greek. It was a Jewish-Greek culture blended together. So obviously, um, it's, it's only 300 miles from Jerusalem, so obviously Alexandria would be one of the first cities to hear about John the Baptist. I mean, Jews that would go to the feasts in Jerusalem would pick up all the news there and come home, and then that would be going on for years, and had been going on for years, when John the Baptist was preaching. He was, like I said, incredibly famous. And then when Jesus came along, they would have been hearing about him, too. So there's a lot of information coming. Maybe not all exactly accurate or complete or anything like that, but there would have been a lot of talk going on about those two men. So Apollos heard about Jesus and he believed in him. John, in fact, pointed to Jesus, right? And Apollos was a Jesus man. So for him... Whatever the attractions of philosophy were in Alexandria, they were entirely subordinated to his commitment to the Messiah coming into the world. He at least knew that. Jesus was the Messiah proclaimed by John the Baptist. So Apollos gave himself to letting the world know about Jesus. He was some kind of an evangelist, a very bold and confident teacher who knew the scriptures. You see how Luke said, uh, he was mighty in the scriptures. He doesn't say he was mighty in allegorical interpretation. He was mighty in the scriptures. He, he rejected Philo's view. I think you can surmise from that. And he was teaching why Jesus was the Messiah from the scriptures. So he was proclaiming Christ. So an educated, eloquent Apollos comes to mighty Ephesus. He is mighty in the scriptures. And yet we learn in verse 25 that there are gaps in his understanding. So this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, by whom we don't know, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. That's why I say I think he rejected Philo's view of the Bible, because he's, he's being accurate. He's not 
spinning yarns based on, you know, when you do allegorical stuff, you can make up whatever you want, right, uh, out of the scriptures. And people do that still today all the time. That's why you don't want to be around that. But they were, he was teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So he'd never heard of Christian baptism or being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So obviously some great truths about Jesus made it to Alexandria. Enough truth where he felt compelled to follow Jesus and proclaim Jesus. But some things are missing. So New Testament scholars, they disagree about what Apollos knew or what he needed to know. So these are just kind of questions that are in the air. To not know anything about the Great Commission in terms of baptism, I mean, that's, that's how Matthew's gospel ends, right? The Great Commission, to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So he didn't know that. That's a big missing piece of information right there. So some people believe his lack of knowledge included even the gospel elements, Jesus' death for sin, his resurrection. Doesn't say one way or the other about that there. But if he was given the gospel as we know it, he should have known something about Christian baptism. That's how people think about this. Other people say no, he would have known the gospel, but somewhere he just missed the idea of Christian baptism. It didn't come complete. It wasn't, no apostle went to Alexandria and gave the full and complete thing. There wasn't a conscious thing yet there. So he's picking up what he can and it's enough for him. He's compelled by it to move forward and proclaim Christ. Either view might be correct about what he knew or didn't know. Did he know the real gospel yet or not? Either view could be correct. I think he did. Um, Luke uses pretty interesting language saying Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Um, So I think that would mean he, somebody came and taught him what he learned. Um, Now what does it mean the way of the Lord though? That could be every, a, a lot or it could be early stuff. He may have known that Jesus was the Messiah proclaimed by John the Baptist. He may have known about his miracles. I'm sure he did. That kind of word gets around. And the Bible says it got around in the Gospels. His teaching, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, his proclaiming of the kingdom of God coming soon, those elements certainly would have been there. Did he get as far as the death and resurrection of Christ, what happened at the end of Jesus' life and propelled the Gospel forward? We don't know for sure about that. I think he probably did know that. Um, But maybe not. But if it's correct that he didn't know that, he still may have known what John the Baptist said about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He might not have known everything that meant, but he might have known that. So we don't know. It's hard to know from Luke. Luke doesn't tell us how deficient he was in knowledge. And that makes me think the deficiencies that he had are not the main idea. It's not the main reason Luke wrote this. What's the main reason Luke wrote this? Well, I think it's a couple things. It's the quality of the man himself And then it's what Aquila and Priscilla do when they find out about his deficiencies, whatever they were. That's that's where we want to focus our real attention because that's what Luke is telling us. So it's it's fun to read stuff into the Bible, but um, Luke has a purpose and he has a reason why he left certain things out and why he included the points he did. So let's focus on the points he did. So first of all, let's talk about the man himself. Here's a university man, probably, highly educated, more interested and fired up about the scriptures than he is about philosophy. That's really important. He's a self-identified Jesus man and he's eager to share the good news at least as he understands it about Jesus. That he's the Messiah and his kingdom is coming. So he's a preacher though no church sent him out. He went out on his own and he wants his fellow Jews to know the way of the Lord as he understands it. 
So that's all very commendable, very commendable. So he comes to Ephesus to the synagogue where Paul had briefly spoken and where there is the, at best a, a small little fellowship of Christians around Aquila and Priscilla, the, the tent maker and his wife. And now, so now we got to think about this guy, this incredibly gifted man from a highly educated place who knows the scriptures well, he's mighty in the scriptures, and he meets this couple, Aquila, who's an, in, in that world he would be an artisan, he's a man who works with his hands, and his charming wife, I mean he meets them. They are not university graduates. They have not grown up in a place like Alexandria. They didn't go to any of the big Ivy League schools or whatever they called them back then, right? And yet, God ordained that this couple be there at just the time when he arrived. That they would be the ones that would be there. And Paul would not even be there then. God arranged that. God arranged that. So Apollos is invited to speak in the synagogue and he does so. He does so boldly and he does so persuasively. Verse 26, he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. Says it right there. So he's in his element. He's a great orator and it's, it's not hard to listen to him. You're nodding off back there. No, I'm just kidding. Aquila and Priscilla are present. So they're hearing everything he's saying. And they pick up on the deficiencies in his preaching, what's missing. And after the service, they take him aside for a quiet, personal conversation. And that's the best way to handle a situation like this, privately. So verse 26, he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately, more accurately. This is a great testing moment for Apollos, isn't it? The great test of his character and the great test of his dedication to Jesus. Will he listen to these folks who in their culture are beneath him? This woman and her craftsman husband. Will he be too proud to listen or will he be open to learning from them? Well, he listens. In fact, he's more than happy to complete what he doesn't know, to have that information given to him, a fuller understanding of Jesus and what he accomplished. He listens. It's not too surprising. He's already demonstrated great care in being accurate, right? They noticed how accurate he was. Unlike some of the sensational characters you might see preaching in our time, and certain quarters today. He didn't follow the allegorical school. He preached the scriptures. They invited him to learn. They gave him the information and he took it to heart. He took it to heart. How do we know he listened? Well, our wonderful couple here, Aquila and Priscilla, are happy to commend him to the church back in Corinth. They write him a letter, write a letter for him. Verse 27, when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So they give him a letter to take. It's from Aquila and Priscilla and whoever else was in their little fellowship. And they say, this guy's solid and he's really talented. Um, support him and encourage him. So, Achaia, that's where Corinth is. In fact, Corinth is the capital of Achaia. So he's going where they had been. They're letting him go to where Paul shepherded a church for 18 months. And they're not afraid, they're not worried about it. Because he's strong enough in the scriptures and he listened to what they had to say. He's, 
taking it in, they trust in him. So, if you don't get anything outside of what I say today, just listen for one second. You do people a favor by being well informed yourself about what the Bible teaches, about God's word, and you use it to help other people. You do people a favor by knowing scripture yourself and knowing sound doctrine yourself and being able to help other people learn it that are deficient in some things like that. I love what um, Lenski, he wrote a commentary on Acts, what he says about Aquila and Priscilla. He says, the best university training Apollos ever received was given him in this tent maker's shop. And the best professor Apollos ever had was this tent maker's wife, Priscilla. Among the greatest services these two ever rendered to the Lord was what they did for Apollos. I think he's right. Let's see how he used what they taught him. He's off to Achaia, verse 27. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. So he does understand that. If he didn't understand grace before, he does now. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So whatever opposition there still was in Corinth and those surrounding communities there, he was a powerful advocate for the, for the Messiahship of Jesus from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. So he's an awesome guy, Apollos. We don't know much more about him except that he was a big hit in Corinth. We know that. How do we know that? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you may remember, um, Paul had to rebuke the church there because they were dividing among themselves. This never happens today. <laughs> but they all had their favorite preacher and they were sort of separating from based on their favorite preacher. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 3, since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? So there was the Paul, we're sticking with Paul, he was the great, no, Apollos, man, he's powerful. Paul was okay, but he was powerful. And, uh, and Paul says, what, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So that neither the one who plants nor the, the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth, right? It's not about men, is it? It's not about preachers and humans and things like that. It's about what God does. They're just servants of the word. That's all they are. Both men had great impact on Corinth, the Corinthian church, but only because God worked through them. That's why. So rejoice in what God is doing. Not, don't rejoice in, in men. And um, that's, the, that's the appearance uh, of Apollos outside the book of Acts. That's about it. So we have th those two things. So we know he did a great job in Corinth. Let's get to our other story now. We go to chapter 19, and this is the one that raises some really gnarly questions. 19.1, it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. So Apollos has left, he's gone to Achaia, he's, hit, he's in Corinth. Paul finally arrives, a long walk, <laughs> um, in, in Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So Paul finally makes it to Ephesus where he finds this group of 
ignorant disciples, right? And this is the story where scoffers start to take their theology and try to read into the story. Pentecostals love this story because it, to them it shows that the gift of tongues comes as a second work of grace after you're saved. So you're saved and then you get kind of uh, the second blessing and then you speak in tongues and things like that. Non-Pentecostal scholars to avoid that conclusion, anybody avoiding that conclusion, say these guys were not believers to begin with. They were unsaved people. I actually think both of those views are wrong. This is my personal opinion, okay? We're all wrestling with the text here. And I'll tell you why in a brief sort of way. First of all, Luke calls them disciples. And when Luke says somebody's a disciple, unless this is a weird exception, he always means they're Christians. They're following Christ. They're disciples of Christ. When Luke uses that term, he means Christian. It's possible he means phony disciples or disciples in name only, but he doesn't use the term that way ever. And, and clearly Paul is encountering them as disciples. That's, that's, I mean, he didn't just walk up and say, oh, are you disciples? Yeah, we're disciples. You I mean, there was just a lot of conversation obviously going on around this, this thing here. But so he meets them as believers. Um, it is, well, the question is this. Why does Paul ask such a strange question? And the strange question is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why ask that? So non-Pentecostal type commentators today in our time almost always interpret where he says, receive the Holy Spirit. They interpret that as having the Holy Spirit in you. Almost everybody today interprets it that way except Pentecostals. So all believers have the Spirit in them. We know that. Romans 8, 9 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's a really clear teaching in Scripture. So when these guys say they haven't even heard of the Spirit, then they must not belong to him. That's a logical interpretation. That's how it's interpreted by many people today. But I don't think Paul is asking that. I don't think Paul is asking if the Holy Spirit resides in them. That is an interpretation designed to protect us from the Pentecostal interpretation of a second work of grace. And um, they see Paul's question differently. If you if you if you look at older commentaries, they don't have the Pentecostal issue to deal with. So they look at it in a in a way that's different from what these guys do. And I think it's more textually based. So I think meeting these guys who are disciples, they are Christians, Paul is asking them if they've received any of the special gifts that only apostles can give. Tongues, miracles, healings. Not everybody has those gifts. But apostles can give people those gifts. And if they have not received it, he's asking so that they can receive it. So Matthew Henry, who's an old, reliable Puritan guy. A lot of people love Matthew Henry. They still read his commentaries. They're great. They're still treasured today. Not many people read Puritans today, but Matthew Henry's still big because he's so good. But he says this about Paul's question. See, he's not thinking about Pentecostals. He doesn't even have that in his mind. He, he, when he read this, he came up with this. He inquired whether the Holy Spirit, in respect of his miraculous gifts, had been imparted to them, which is what apostles could do. I think that's the simplest and the most reasonable textually driven conclusion based on everything we know that we learned in Acts chapter 8. You might want to turn back to Acts chapter 8 real quick.
I mean, we're being told to say they weren't real disciples because they didn't know about the Holy Spirit. But Luke did identify them as disciples and he didn't have to do that. So if we look at back, back at Acts 8, we'll see why Matthew Henry thought as he did. Short story here, I'm going to make a short version. Philip, who had apostolic hands laid on him in Acts chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, and did have those miraculous powers because the apostles laid hands on him, he went to Samaria to evangelize, right? And there was that guy there, remember this? If you were around back then, Simon the magician was blown away. He was called the great power of God, but he was blown away because Philip had real power. And he was amazed by the miraculous things Philip could do. But he never saw Philip give those powers to anybody else. He just thought Philip was the bee's knees. He was, he was the thing. Because only apostles can give those powers and Philip's not an apostle. He received those powers from an apostle. So in Acts chapter 8, after the Jerusalem church hears about this great work of God up there in Samaria, they send two apostles, Peter and John. So Acts 8.14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. That's exactly the same language, receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they are baptized properly. Verse 15 again, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. That's exactly the language Luke uses in 19.2. Receive the Holy Spirit. Then verse 17 of chapter 8. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed, how could you see the Spirit being bestowed? The Spirit is invisible, right? Because it's talking about these manifestations, these miraculous manifestations. He offered, he, he, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the hands of the apostles, he offered them money. So he's seeing the Holy Spirit come into them by their laying hands on people. Just like they had laid their hands on Philip, they laid their hands on the Samaritans and he can see it. So these gifts were a special blessing confirming apostolic authority. That's why only they can give these gifts. So in Acts chapter 19, Paul is asking the Ephesian 12 if they had received the Spirit. He's using exactly the same language. And I think he means the same thing. Sign gifts, these special gifts. Visible, visible manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Like speaking in tongues. The thing that Simon could see. In fact, you know, in Romans chapter 1, the church in Rome was not apostolically founded. There was, never, there was not an apostle that started that church. It just started by Christians gathering there over time and meeting each other and starting a church there. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 1 verse 11 that he wanted to do something for them. He says, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you so that you may be established. And you know what's interesting about that is in Romans, um, you know, there's two lists of spiritual gifts in the Bible. One's in Romans chapter 12 and one's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Have you ever noticed the difference between those two chapters? In 1 Corinthians, the gifts are tongues, healing, prophesying, on and on and on. It gives all of these miraculous gifts and work, miracle working. The Romans ones are all things like giving and mercy. and There's not, there's not any miraculous gifts in the Romans, Romans one. So when Paul writes them and says, I, I long to impart some spiritual gift to you, I think it's exactly the same thing. He wants to impart the gifts they've never received because an apostle has never been there. 
Apostles can give those gifts, but those that receive them can't pass them on. So I think that's what he's asking in um, Acts chapter 19. But he's really surprised by their answer. Hey, have you guys received the Holy Spirit? And saying that like, I would love to give you that. And they're going, we've never even heard of a Holy Spirit. <laughs> now that shocks him, right? So they're Christians, they're having a normal conversation. At some point he says, have you guys received the Holy Spirit? We've, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. They've got a lot to learn, Paul's thinking. Oh my. So now non-Pentecostal commentators say that if they had the Holy Spirit in them, they would know it. If he resides in every believer, they would know it. I don't think that's necessarily true. Let's just think about a modern example of a person. We'll call him Sam. Sam the worldly guy. Sam is invited to a, Bill, a Franklin Graham crusade. We'll call it a Franklin Graham crusade because Billy's not here anymore. So um, he doesn't have any church background at all. doesn't know anything about Bible, Christianity or anything like that. He hears a really solid message from Franklin Graham about Jesus as the savior of the world. And he believes it and he accepts Jesus as his savior and he wants to follow him. And he tries to live after that what he believes is a Christian life. He doesn't go to church yet. He's kind of shy and doesn't know any Christians. Nobody really invited him anywhere special and he didn't go forward so they didn't give him a card to go someplace. So months go by and a Christian guy at work notices that Sam has a Bible in his cubicle. Sam I, I see you've got a Bible and Sam says yeah I asked Jesus into my life and I but I haven't gotten very far in the Bible yet. It's kind of hard. Now one thing the Christian co-worker at that moment probably would not ask him is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? <laughs> now if he was a Pentecostal co-worker he would exactly ask that because I want to give you something extra. But the average Christian, we wouldn't, why wouldn't we ask that? Because he might have the Holy Spirit and not know it. The Holy Spirit works deep in us. He, he works inside us. He does things. He would have the effects of the Holy Spirit but he's never heard of the Holy Spirit so he doesn't know what that, that is. We might, um, if we did ask Sam, Sam might say I've never heard of the Spirit. Now he could say I've never heard of the Spirit with perfect honesty and have actually accepted Christ and have the Holy Spirit in him, convicting him of his sin, making Jesus sweet to him, leading him to pray, and all of those kind of things. All of that could be happening to him without knowing that it's a work of the Spirit because if they mentioned it at the at Franklin Graham crusade he didn't pick up on the Spirit part of it. So that work of the Spirit is subtle and it's inside and it's changing us but we don't necessarily know what to call that. That could actually happen. And I think that could be true of the Ephesians 12 guys here. Um, they heard about Jesus. They're following what they know. Which isn't that much but might be very real. And the Christian co-worker might well ask Sam, well were you baptized? Why would he ask him that? Because if Sam said, yeah I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, he says, but I've never heard of the Holy Spirit. You might say, well were you baptized? And he goes, no. And you'd say, well, because when you were baptized, they would have said, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're baptized in the name of the Father. But he hasn't been baptized yet. So there again, you're, you're just seeing if he's heard of the Holy Spirit. I think that could actually happen. No, I haven't been baptized. Well, these guys had been baptized here in our text, the Ephesians 12 here, but into John's baptism. So they were baptized when John the Baptist was going around baptizing people in anticipation of the coming of Christ. So they were Jewish disciples of Jesus but all they knew about baptism was John the Baptist because they had not been properly evangelized 
fully. So verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So they needed to be baptized as Christians, he's saying. And like Apollos, they immediately respond to this new information. There's no hesitancy at all, and they get baptized. And I think that shows that the Spirit was in them. So true Christians are going to respond to more truth because the Holy Spirit is in them. Now if Paul had been explaining this to them and they said, no, I don't want to bother with that kind of thing, that might be a sign that the Holy Spirit was not in them. But because they respond so quickly and so readily, I think it's a sign that the Holy Spirit probably was in them. Now I could be wrong about all this, but this is a totally legitimate interpretation. And because I believe it, it's right. That's just how, (laughs) no, I, that's what I think though. Especially Luke's use of the word disciple there. I think that's kind of definitive. But they accept baptism in Christ and then everything done properly. Paul then lays his hands on them to give them a gift that only the apostles can give. Verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and with prophesying. See, there there it is. That's the visible manifestation of the Spirit. There were in all, verse 7, about 12 men. And that's the end of our little story there. So the, the real question is, despite all that, that, that opinion, what does, what does Luke want us to learn from this section? What does Luke want us to get out of this? What's the takeaway for him? I think he's saying there will be people like this that you're going to meet. There's people that are going to have partial truth. And what do you do about that? What do you do for them? We need to patiently teach them a well-rounded, complete gospel and introduce them to Christian living on a biblical basis. Matthew's gospel ends with the command, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I have commanded you, right? And that's what we're supposed to do. So these are examples where that needed to be done. So these people are sort of halfway there or a quarter way there, however you want to think about it like that, they, they are deficient in knowledge. So if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission, when we meet people like that, we want to make sure that they are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that they receive all that Christ commanded us to do, the, the whole truth that they're committed to, they learn everything. Paul told Timothy, you know, he says, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. That's our job. That's my job, and it's your job. It's your job. You're all supposed to be doing that. So you should be gaining knowledge all the time and learning more all the time so that you can intelligently and graciously help people that don't know enough or don't know what they should know and help them along. It's because good people obeyed the Great Commission that you have an accurate knowledge about Jesus. It's because... People were faithful to pass on things to faithful men who were able to teach others also that you heard about Christianity and got the full picture and understand a lot more than just about everybody else around, right? So do the same thing. Learn it well and pass it on. Hi, Judith. Let's pray. Lord, you brought us the truth because others were faithful. So we ask for hearts that would seek to bless other people in the same exact way. Plant your word in us. Give us understanding. May your spirit bring it to mind when we need it and use us 
our great Father, to your glory and to the increase of your people in knowledge and understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.